so excited tonight as we begin our summer series uh, titled Lessons from the Upper Room Discourse. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 1 through 20 tonight. Great text of Scripture. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. And I've titled this, obviously, Lessons from the Upper Room. And we begin tonight with a lesson on the Savior's love. The Savior's love. You know, I always feel like I'm living the dream as a pastor. Um, I lo- I, since the time that the Lord saved me in 1993, and I was birthed in Christ, I always wanted to be a full-time pastor. Little did I know the turmoil and suffering that would come along with it in 1993. But more than that, I've experienced the blessing and the privilege of being a full-time pastor. I feel like I'm living the dream. And you know, in addition to so many aspects of pastoral ministry that I love and that I cherish, one of the privileges that I get, undeserved privileges that I get, is to, is to visit people as a pastor during their final moments of life on, on earth. That's a very surreal, sobering experience, isn't it? If you've been with somebody who uh, is moments away or maybe hours away or maybe even days away from going home to be with the Lord if they're in Christ. And so those are very sobering, surreal moments, and they're emotion-packed moments because you get an opportunity to, to hear from that person, to sort of get a, get a, get a uh, uh, see through the window of their hearts what is taking place. What is precious to them? What is the ponderings and the meditations of their hearts are now expressed to you as a person or the people that are there present uh, just in uh, of their Christian journey? And so I love those particular moments to hear the hearts of, of, a, of a heart of a person who, who is basically expressing their parting words. It's an amazing eye-opening experience. Well, you know, in a sense, that is what we get an opportunity to do in John chapters 13 through 17 beginning tonight. We have the opportunity to hear the heart of our Lord Jesus and what was most precious to him as our Savior. It was Sinclair Ferguson who commented this about the upper room discourse. He comments, if the synoptic gospels, by which he meant Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if the synoptic gospels show you the body of Christ, the gospel of John surely shows you the heart of Christ. I love that. I would wholeheartedly agree. And this is especially true when it comes to these chapters of John chapters 13 through 17. It's here that we have an opportunity to hear from the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. The last words, at least before his passion, his suffering and his death, and later on his resurrection and ascension, to hear the the precious words to his disciples and exhortations to them that would help them prepare for what was to come as far as his suffering and his death. That's what the upper room discourse of our Lord Jesus is all about. And it's called the upper room because it was most likely some kind of a, of a banquet room that it, this meal was held at on the rooftop of someone's home. That was very common during those days, especially during feasts where people would rent out their, their uh, second floor room there at their house for some of the pilgrims that were to come in to have the Passover meal. And so Jesus has made prior arrangements for this particular Passover meal to take place with his disciples. He said, I have earnestly desired to take this Passover meal with you, he told his disciples. And so this upper room was already prepared. It was most likely in open air with some kind of a covering over this room. 
axes would have been available to this particular room from the outside of the, of the house in most situations, so as not to disturb the, the owners of that particular house. And so this would have been a pre-prepared place, situation, for this Passover meal, fully furnished and ready to be used. And so Jesus finds himself here in this upper room along with his precious disciples and one Judas Iscariot on the evening on Thursday. Now, John chapter 13, if you've been reading through this already and, and meditating, I hope, in these passages, John 13 really picks it up already with the Passover meal already in place. But more importantly, what you need to know is this. There have already been a number of things that have taken place during this meal. And one of them, for context's sake, if you read in Luke chapter 22, that particular parallel account of Luke 22 tells us that sometime during this meal, Perhaps right after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper here in the upper room, the disciples were actually yet again disputing with one another what particular subject. Which one of them was the greatest? Man, we've seen that again and again, right? Luke chapter 22, verse 24, they were disputing with one another as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. That's been an ongoing conversation with these guys. It's like they never seem to learn, right? On top of this, you can imagine how much of an emotion-packed night this is in light of what is to take place later on. Jesus, this is the, the evening before Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. And within the next 24 hours or so, Jesus will be dead. Emotion-packed night. But before that, he has earnestly desired to, to take this Passover meal in the upper room with them. And this particular meal must have taken somewhere between four to five hours. It was prolonged with much conversation between Jesus and his disciples. But the, most of, the bulk of this time consisted of Jesus speaking to his disciples about things that were on his heart because his hour had already arrived. Remember, he's been speaking so much about this, this hour, the hour of his suffering, of his death, of his resurrection, of his ascension, when he was going to go back to, to the Father. He has said, my hour has not yet come throughout the Gospel of John, and now his hour has arrived, and Jesus is about to die on the cross very soon. And so no doubt in the light of that, brothers, think about the, how full Jesus' heart must have been with his impending death there before him at hand. Later on, we're going to see how Jesus is full of emotion as well. Even in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, hours later, Jesus is filled with, with grief and sorrow over the fact that he's going to be separated from his Father because he's going to take upon himself the fullness of the Father's wrath for our sins. And so Jesus' heart must have been full with his impending death at hand. But what do we find him doing? Instead of sulking, instead of being consumed with himself, what we read in John chapters 13 through 17 is that Jesus, on the forefront of his mind, had his disciples and their well-being in mind. He was concerned about them. In the midst of this emotion-packed time where Jesus is now seeing his death come very soon, he's most preoccupied not with himself and his own needs, but with the needs of his disciples, right? We see that here in this particular upper room discourse. And it's in the midst of his own time of trial and difficulty and affliction that we're going to see that Jesus focuses on teaching his disciples first and foremost here in John chapter 13 a profound lesson about, listen, his love for them. His love for them. 
and from that about the need that they have to love one another and display love for one another, following after his example. What a lesson for us to begin with in our summer series. The love of Christ for his own, right? Because for so many of us, brothers, we've forgotten, frankly, tonight, how much Jesus Christ loves us. And oftentimes we, we sort of react when we hear statements like that. And we think, well, we don't want to be about that wishy-washy, you know, a liberal evangelical kind of statement that we need to be about the love of Jesus. We get that. Preach it. Yes. There's wrong kind of preaching that is superficially preaching a type of wishy-washy, right, uh, love of God that condones sin, that sweeps our sin under the rug. But to speak of the, the love of Christ is not... It is a very profitable thing for us to do tonight. And Jesus begins there in John chapter 13. He begins by speaking of his, of his love or showing his love for his, to his disciples. And I think this is such a great lesson for us. Because we are, brothers, so performance-driven, so guilt-ridden people so oftentimes. But I can't think of a, of a greater motivation for the man of God you and I included, to pursue holiness and a life of obedience than a greater profound understanding of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. When you understand the love of Jesus for you, it's a, a, a propeller towards a greater life of holiness in Christ and loving obedience in the light of the fact that Jesus has gone to the cross to die for your sins. So this is such an important lesson for us. We love because he first loved us. Amen? We're going to see that here. And so as we look at our Savior's love, let's begin there, all right? Let's begin by, by learning to rejoice at the extent of Christ's love for you. I want to exhort us to rejoice at the extent of Christ's love. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, in other words, his hour to suffer and die for sins had come, his time to ascend and go back to the Father, that hour had arrived. And knowing that his hour had finally come, notice, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to, read it with me, to the end. To the end. You see that word translated there, the end? It's the Greek word, tell us. And that word has a sense of Jesus loved his disciples to the last, to the max. Jesus loved his disciples to the utmost. Let's put it this way. Jesus loved his disciples to perfection is the idea there. To perfection. John says, as, as far as Jesus' love for us, as he's reminiscing about this upper room discourse, Jesus had scored a perfect 10 as far as his love for us. There was no room for improvement as far as our Savior's love was concerned. That's what he's saying here. Now, the demonstration of Jesus' love is, is coming in a minute. But I want you to pause and think about this as you put yourself in the first century shoes of the Apostle John, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is penning John chapter 13. Put yourself in his shoes. This man, the disciple whom Jesus loved, prior to that, a, a son of thunder, right? This man 
30 years later, as he's penning this gospel, begins recounting the upper room discourse by marveling at the extent of Jesus' love for he and the other disciples. This is the one thing, the first thing that as John pens his gospel, he wants us to know that Jesus loved them to the max, to perfection. I mean, he could have talked about a lot of other things that happened in that upper room. Where does he begin? Let me tell you guys about Jesus' love. That he loved us to the max. Maybe you've had moments like these. Maybe you, you look back and reminisce about certain events of your life. And as you're doing that, maybe you remember certain moments or aspects of a particular situation or a moment more than others. Maybe there's one thing that stands out for you. That one thing that forever is etched upon your memory bank, right? John is having one of those moments. John is saying, boy, did Jesus love us. Boy, did Jesus, even to this moment, he had loved us throughout his lifetime as we walked with him three and a half years or so for most of them. But he loved us even to the very max, even to this particular moment. Of course, he says Jesus has loved them throughout this gospel, right? Even prior to this time. And he's lo he loved them by calling them out from, from a life of godlessness and hopelessness. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of, of men. He loved them by calling them out of the domain of darkness, calling them to himself, right? And he loved them by, by preaching to them life-giving words that if they applied those words to their life and they believed in Jesus Christ and acted on those words, they were to have eternal life and have life and have it abundantly. He's loved them by displaying powerful works which reveal his glory and his majesty that they might have their faith strengthened. He's loved them throughout the time that they've been following after him. He showed them love, brothers, by Jesus being utterly patient with them even though they've been so hard-headed, they've blown it again and again, and they've displayed great weakness and vulnerabilities. Jesus has loved them to this point, but now he will love them to the max, John says. And in order to accentuate the extent of his love, notice John mentions two key things here about the, the moment of maximum love that Jesus is about to display. The first thing is concerning Jesus' prominence, that Jesus is about to do something even despite or in light of the fact that he is the infinitely majestic one. His prominence is highlighted. Verse 1 mentions that Jesus loved them all the way to the end, knowing that he's now returning back to God. Talk about prominence of origin. If anyone knows what heaven is like, it's the eternal Son of God. Jesus is about to do this act of love, even though he knows where he comes from, his prominence and his position. Keep that on the back of your mind for later. Jesus hasn't forgotten who he is. Verse 3, Jesus loved them all the way to the end, knowing that God had given all things into his hands. Talk about prominence of position and rank. This is the creator of the universe. This is the sustainer, the eternal son of God who sustains everything by the word of his power, right? Jesus knew where he had come from and where he was going, and he knew the infinite divine privileges that he had from his father. He's aware, in other words, of his majesty and his infinite glory. If anyone in the upper room had a right to thinking about his glory at this time and his majesty, it was Jesus, right? If anyone had a right to do that. And who are the ones that are talking about their future greatness? The disciples, full of weakness and vulnerability. Jesus could have done that. But the second thing here, in addition to 
in addition to Jesus' prominence, that really accentuates the extent of his love here, is this, that there is a mention here of Christ's love, even in the midst of the shocking news of who would betray him, Judas Iscariot. Think about that. In other words, the act that Jesus is about to perform happens even though Judas Iscariot is sitting there, and even Judas Iscariot will be the recipient of what Jesus is about to do. That just accentuates the extent of Jesus' love, doesn't it? Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper. But what is highlighted there? We know who the traitor is. As I read this, I couldn't help but be reminded of Psalm 41 and verse 9 where David speaks of, of one of his enemies in Psalm 41, verse 9, and he says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. There David is surely contemplating the bitterness of betrayal in his life by one of his enemies, but he's also speaking prophetically, isn't he? Later on, we're going to see this. It also spoke there of the ultimate traitor who would be Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus, one of Jesus' own followers. One of those who claimed to be loyal to Jesus would betray him. Jesus knows the traitor, and yet he's about to do this loving act even to Judas. Think about this, even in our own lives. I mean, it's one thing to love people who love us back, isn't it? I heard a hmm and an amen. Yes. I mean, it's one thing to love people who love us back. It's one thing to love people who reciprocate our love for them our kindness for them, to love people who are lovable, to love people who are likable, who, to love people whom we deem worthy of our love. It's quite easy to do that. It's quite another thing to love a person who despises you, who hates your guts, right? And yet this is what Jesus did here. See how John accentuates what Jesus is about to do and the extent of his love by pointing to his divine privilege, and yet he's willing to do what he's about to do, and he highlights and accentuates Jesus' love by virtue of the fact that the very traitor is sitting there in the upper room. Judas Iscariot. This is the greatness and the extent of the love of Christ. Now we may look at Judas and say, wow, well I'm glad as I read this particular passage that I'm no Judas. I mean, it wasn't that, that hard for Jesus to love me as hard as it was to, for him to love Judas. Think again. Think again as you ponder your life journey. Because you see, the scriptures say that at one time we didn't love God either. And in fact, if you are sitting here and you haven't given your life to Jesus, the reality of it is, is you don't love God either. Ultimately, you are a God hater and you are a traitor and you are a Judas. And for those of us who are in Christ, do you recognize that that's who we were at one point too, brothers? We were God haters and traitors. Listen to a couple of scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says that you, Christian, were dead, were, past tense, prior to Christ, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked or lived, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Boy, that's a terrifying description of who we were prior to Jesus, right? We're pursuing after the, the sinful desires of our hearts. And God was giving us over to those things. And we were, present tense, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest, prior to Jesus coming into our lives. Same with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. It says that at one time we were, prior to Jesus, darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the hardness of our hearts. We were callous and had given ourselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I mean, we weren't even content with our wickedness that we were fleshing out. We were even greedy. We wanted more wickedness is what that passage is saying. This is who we were prior to meeting Christ. Or Christ coming into our life. And brothers, if that were the end of the story, we would have no hope, right? No hope whatsoever. But then this is where, where God stepped in. It was against the, the backdrop of our dark wickedness that God's love shined brightest in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says this, But God, in contrast to your manner of life and your wickedness, your spiritual death, but God, in contrast, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what was the timing of God's love and grace shown to us? It was in our worst state, brothers. When we were most unlovable and unattractive. And you know what that tells me for those of you who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior? That it's when you recognize that you are unlovable and unattractive and that you are a sinner. That, and you come broken before the Lord and you say, Lord, I want to be saved. I know that I'm living in rebellion against you. I know that I'm a, I'm a self-idolater. I want to live out my purpose for which you created me to glorify you and enjoy you forever. You know what? God hears a broken sinner like that and he saves you. It's when we recognize the fact that we are unlovable and unattractive that salvation comes. By a merciful and gracious God. Same precious love in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Listen to Romans 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see that? It was in the moment of our rebellion against God that God stepped in and showed us his great love by sending Jesus into the world to die for sinners among whom we are foremost of all. Amen? His great love was shown to us when we were living in darkness and wickedness. Talk about love. Talk about love. Great love. Again, it's one thing to reciprocate someone else's love for you. But what about someone who hates you? How motivated are you to initiate loving a person who despises you? But this is exactly what God did for us in Christ. We were running the opposite direction. We were hopeless and without God in the world. And yet he sought us. Can I ask you tonight, brothers, how often do you contemplate this particular love of God for you? How often do you, do you relish in the expression of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, the magnitude of that love, the lavishness of that love, the relentlessness of that love in Christ Jesus that kept pursuing you and pursuing you and pursuing you, even though you wanted that life of wanton pleasure that you were pursuing?
How often do you relish in that? How often do you spend time percolating and, and pondering the love of Jesus and rejoicing in that love? That it would drive you to, to exude the love of Jesus and to say to people, listen to me. You are a great sinner, but there's a great Savior who has come and who loves you. Repent and believe in the Savior. How often do you do that? You see, this is an understanding of, of Christ's love for us is, is why and how we are able to love others. We love, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first, what? Loved us. That's where it begins. Understanding the love of God in Christ Jesus that then would drive you as you understand that love to love other people. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says that, he has poured out His love within our hearts through His Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's from the endless ocean of God's love that you will be able to then draw from that and love other people, you see? And practice forgiveness and service to others. In fact, later on in this discourse, we're going to see Jesus calling them to love one another. But mark it, it will be on the basis of what He does here for them. His love for them is what is going to drive them to obey His instructions to love one another. Because they've seen him do it first and foremost. So where does it begin? You're struggling with loving other people in your life? Go back and check your heart as far as your understanding of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, right? That's where it begins. And this is where John's recalling of the upper room discourse begins. By reminding them, his readers, of the extent of Christ's love for them who are his followers. So may I encourage you then, first and foremost, to to relish or rejoice at the extent of Christ's love for you. Amazing love. But next, may I encourage you to be humbled by the expression of Christ's love. Be humbled, secondly, by the expression of Christ's love. Here we see Christ's love in verses 4 through 11 in action. And we know from a passage that's familiar to you, 1 Corinthians 13, that God's kind of love certainly includes emotions and, and feelings and all of those things. He wants our wholehearted love with all of our being. But more than that, God's kind of love is a love that is expressed in, in action. It's a love that is, that is shown. And Jesus shows us here. He displays such love. Look at verse 4. In the midst of this, it says that Jesus rose from supper. This is some time when the meal is still going. People are still eating, still enjoying this particular meal. And it's at this time that Jesus does the unthinkable. Apparently, no servant had been there. We don't know. We can only speculate. But no servant had been there to do the customary needed washing of feet. But much to the shame of the disciples, none of them had stepped up to do the job. None of them had to this point. They had been too busy doing what? Debating amongst themselves who was the greatest. That's what they had been doing. So sometime during this meal, the Lord gets up and verse 4 says that he laid aside his outer garments. That is that, is that he, he took off his outer robe, maybe his belt, his inner, inner tunic, right? He would have looked like a servant slave, Jesus. And taking the towel, verse 4, that would have been the servant's towel. He tied it around his waist, I mean, this is, this is astonishing if you have had your eyes beholding the, the glorious Christ of the gospel of John. And this is what John is saying. In the light of Jesus' words and works that you've seen for 12 chapters, John chapters 1 through 12, this is astonishing what is taking place here at the most famous, prominent person in the universe is actually making himself a servant and a slave of all. 
Like the president, it's like the president of the United States, even though I know he's not very popular right now. But think of a popular president that you actually liked. Well, there hasn't been very many, so never mind that one. You get the point, right? It's like the president of the United States or the prime minister of England doing something like this. It would be shocking to us. It would be astonishing to us that somebody could, could stoop so low to do something like this. But those people pale in comparison to who this person is. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer over heaven, of heaven and earth. This is Jesus taking the posture of the lowliest of servants here. And he condescends even lower beyond his attire. Verse 5, notice, then he poured water into a basin. This would have been some kind of a bucket or receptacle used for, for, for that. The special purpose of washing feet. He pours water into this basin, and Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Boy, can you imagine the faces of the disciples? Can you imagine Jesus going from guest to guest, your master, your Lord, guest to guest, with this bucket of water, washing their dirty feet and drying them with this towel? Imagine the uneasiness. Imagine the, the shame that they must have felt, that none of them actually took the initiative to serve one another in that manner. Jesus did. Imagine the utter shock. This is our Lord. What is he doing here? At least one of them, if you notice in verse 6, speaks and expresses what the rest maybe were thinking. He came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered in verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter, soon enough it's going to make sense. Soon enough I'm going to explain. You're going to understand the significance of what I'm doing. An explanation is coming. Boy, that, that should have been enough for Peter right there. But we've learned better with the man, haven't we? <laughs> Look at verse 8. Peter said to him more vehemently, You shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. That construction there is, is strong. It's strong. No way. Or me being a Mexican, no way, Jose, right? Some of you didn't get it. All right. No way. He's saying here, in no way, shape, or form shall you do this. I forbid it is a sense there. I forbid it. Peter is outraged. He's utterly offended. Why? Because Peter would never do such a thing, let alone think that Jesus should do such a thing, right? For Jesus to do such a thing is beneath him from Peter's perspective. It's beneath him. Now listen, at first glance, we may think Peter is showing some humility here, but he's actually doing the opposite, isn't he? Peter is displaying great pride here. For if Jesus is doing this, then obviously it's because Peter himself was one of the ones that was unwilling to do what Jesus is doing. Too proud to do it or not mindful of serving others. Further, Peter obviously needs what Jesus is giving him here. He needs this, and we're going to see this in a minute. And you see, brothers, often we too can be like Peter. There's a lesson here within the lesson of Jesus' love for us. We can be like Peter where in the name of humility and trying to give this vibe about ourselves that, that, you know, we're too humble to take from other people and have other people serve us in pride, subtle pride. We may act like we don't need anything from anyone. 
We display this subtle pride and self-sufficiency and self-dependence like Peter. When Jesus exposes Peter's pride, look at verse 8. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. Now Jesus is taking things to a whole different level, isn't he? And with these words, Jesus is transitioning to the greater significance of what he's doing here. There's something about this washing that goes beyond the physical to a deeper spiritual washing that Jesus is talking about. This becomes more evident in Peter's response. Verse 9, look there. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter says, if this is the case, if the washing is essential, then I need a full bath here. Our Lord clarifies, verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. See, Jesus isn't just talking about having clean feet here. He even mentions the one who is not clean, spiritually speaking. Who is that? Judas Iscariot, who is sitting there. And so what's Jesus talking about here? I think he's talking really about a deep type of cleansing. He's speaking about the process that we know as salvation, isn't he? He's picturing salvation as the, as the full bath here, where God, at the moment of regeneration, takes us, the sinners that we are, washes us of our sins and cleanses us, and he makes us new by the indwelling Holy Spirit, right? That was the custom of the day, by the way. Before you went to someone's house for a meal, what would you do? You would take a full bath, but then on the way there to that particular location where you were going to be hosted, you went through these dirty, muddy roads, and your feet would get dirty. So what was needed when you arrived at the home of the host was that your feet would be washed by a servant. That was the whole idea. And what Jesus is saying here is that salvation is the, is the same way. There's that initial act of, of regeneration, of being born again of the new birth where God takes a sinner, washes you of your filth and moral defilement, and he cleanses you of your guilt before him in Christ Jesus. Beautiful picture. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, if you need a text that describes this act of regeneration. Titus 3 verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And how did he accomplish this? On the inside organically, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens on the inside at the point of salvation in the heart of a spiritually dead person. By the way, this is what, again, you need tonight. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ, you need his washing and his cleansing from your sins. And if you come asking, broken and repentant, he's more than willing to wash you and to cleanse you of your sin the way that he has done for us sinners as well. You need to do that tonight. But then if you're already a Christian, moving beyond this, there's this ongoing process called sanctification, right? This ongoing relationship with Christ. There is the daily and continual need that we have as children of God for cleansing. And we need this ongoing cleansing because we get dirty and polluted by the filth of the world daily, brothers. We need our thinking and conduct washed and renewed each and every day. 
This is what is called this ongoing process of sanctification. And that's why 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 is, is so important for us as believers as we think about this. Where it says that if we say that we have no sin, this is for Christians. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's not talking about justification there. He's talking about those who are in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That there's this ongoing need for us to recognize that we are not perfect and there's this need for daily confession of our sins before the Lord. And the answer will always be yes in Christ Jesus because of his finished work. But nevertheless, we come to him. Why? Because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's to believers. We don't cease to come to God and confess our sins because we are saved. Now as saved believers, as Christians, as children of God, we come to God and confess our sins because we know that the answer will always be yes in Christ. Amen? And so we do that continually. That's what this is describing here. And so what a humbling expression of Christ's love we see here. He who has unlimited privilege and position and majesty and glory stoops down brothers to display sacrificial love for his own. But Jesus is not done. He's not done. His loving actions, you see, also have implications for the way that we interact with one another as brothers in Christ. And so thirdly, let us thirdly follow the example of Christ's love. Follow the example of Christ's love. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. In other words, you, you view me as one in authority. You address me that way. You've seen my authority. You've heard my teaching that I teach with authority. They've seen all of that, and they're right in seeing him as one who has great authority. No one in the room would have argued about Jesus' power and authority. No one would have denied the fact that he's teacher and Lord. They confessed him as such and much more, right? You are the, the Holy One of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said, speaking on his behalf and on behalf of the others who were there, minus Judas Iscariot. No one would have denied the authority of Jesus. Verse 14, if I then, says Jesus, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, isn't it? If I, being who I am, God of very God, your master, your Lord, the eternal son of God, have stooped down to love you this way, you also ought to be willing to do the same for one another. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. I love that word example there. Hupodegma. It means a model, a pattern that Jesus has given them. Jesus says, as, as my time has now come, you guys need to follow my lead and display this kind of self-sacrificial love for one another now that I'm going to be leaving and departing from the earth, disciples. Later on, he will explicitly command them in John chapter 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, he says, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so having watched them, they were to go and do, and do likewise. You see, brothers, that, that there, there are always implications for the believer to draw from the person and the work of Jesus for our own personal lives and for our relationships with one another. 
Here's another one here explicitly stated by our Lord. I've done this for you. You ought to in turn do this for one another. Love one another. Serve one another in the same way. A passage that kept coming to mind as Jesus is speaking these words was Philippians chapter 2. Our pastor went there, I think, a couple of Sundays ago. That great kenosis passage. The passage about Jesus' self-emptying, willing, joyful, voluntary, self-emptying at his incarnation, right? Where he laid aside willingly the, the full extent of his divine privileges. He didn't cease to be God. He added humanity to his deity, right? But by choice, he was fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And at different times, he could manifest his power, as we've seen in the Gospel of John. But he didn't exercise the full, independent ex uh, um, exercise of his divine attributes. That wonderful kenosis passage and what Jesus did is the ground and the basis of our humble, loving service for other people as well. The way that Jesus humbled himself at his incarnation and did what he did all the way to the cross to die for sinners. That then becomes Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, the basis or the ground for us loving one another and forgiving one another and serving one another as Jesus is instructing them to do here. It's because of Jesus' humility that we ought to be humble and serve other people sacrificially. And you see, as we think about this, even as men, listen, as the men of the church go, so does the church. Did you hear that, brothers? As the men of the church go, so does the church. We have some amazing women at our church. And the, and the issue here is not that women, the, the women of our church should take a step back in any capacity and anything that they're doing, but we need men all the more to learn from Jesus' example and step up all the more, follow his example of self-sacrificial loving service. Can I get an amen? amen? We need men to be not proud, but humble, self-sacrificial servants in our church all the more, brothers. You say, what did you hear, Pastor Campus? Nothing. I can just tell you that in every church, it's the same thing. Few and far between are the men who are living out the implications of Jesus setting this kind of example and, and following after Jesus' example like this. Listen to me. It's humble people and humble men of God like Jesus who are devoted, self-sacrificial servants of others. Proud people aren't just people who say to themselves, I'm better than others. Instead, proud people are more so people who say to themselves or live this way that in the way that we, we communicate, my needs are more important than the needs of others. You get that? We can show subtle pride by making our needs more important than others and living, excuse me, living that way. Brothers, Christ-like love and humility go hand in hand as we see in the person of the Lord Jesus. Where you have Christ-like love, you have a humble man of God. Where you have genuine humility, you have a self-sacrificially loving kind of man. They go hand in hand, like Siamese twins. You're a loving man of God, loving God and loving others self-sacrificially. Then it could be said of you that you are humble and meek of heart, right? You're a humble and meek of heart kind of a man. You're going to display, flesh out love for your family and for your wife and for your kids and for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And even in the workplace, you're going to be a testimony of Christ-like kind of love. And that shows the fact that you are a humble man from the heart like Jesus. But proud men are fixated upon their own problems and concerns 
Proud men are not mindful of the needs of others. Proud men think it's beneath them to do the most menial tasks for someone else. But just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Though the most important person in the universe, Jesus walks into a room or is in a room in the upper room and if feet needed to be washed, who does it? The most prominent one. Who if anyone can speak of glory and majesty, it was Jesus. Amen? He was, he is majestic and infinitely glorious. He is the one that meets the need. Despite prominence and prestige and position, if anyone really had it from the heart, in a non-selfish way, it was Jesus because he is inherently glorious and majestic, and yet he is the most humble and meek servant of all. What a picture. What a portrait here. And this ought to be the case with each of us. It shouldn't be that the women of our church brothers are the chief servants of our church. It shouldn't be that others, only a few men, do most of the work. We all are called to be highly committed participants rather than passive spectators. Amen? By God's grace. Because we can't do it in and of ourselves. I'm weak. You're weak. We're vulnerable. We all have deficiencies. We get that. But God will never command us to do something and be chief servants in the church if he doesn't give us the power and the grace to fulfill that. Amen? Following after the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. Position or prominence should never be a deterrent to serving others. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is self-evident, isn't it? Jesus is making the point here that prominence and position should never be a deterrent to you not serving or self-sacrificially meeting the needs of others. Right? By this statement, I think in verse 16, he acknowledges that there are structures of authority in society. He's not denying those, but he's saying those structures should never make us proud so as to detract us from loving service to other people. Never. Furthermore, Jesus is clear here that if you follow his example of loving service, guess what? Blessedness and happiness will follow. I love this. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, what is he talking about? Since you know these things, since you know you're supposed to love others like this, as I've modeled for you, blessed are you if you do them. I love that. Happy are you if you do them. Don't just glance past that. Underline that. Blessed are you if you serve other people. Blessed are you if you're having a difficult time in your home loving your spouse. Because she has been difficult. Blessed are you if you still lovingly serve her and love her as Christ loves the church. Blessed are you. And you do it for the motivation as unto the Lord, right? Loving her as Christ loves the church. Blessed are you, grandparent, if you're seeking to invest yourself now into your children and your grandchildren in a way that honors Christ. Blessed are you if you're doing that, if you're serving them. Blessed are you if you're in a difficult work environment and you're seeking to work out uh, your, your salvation in fear and trembling even in that work environment by working hard with your own hands so that you are a great testimony of a Christ-like kind of employee in that church. Blessed are you if you're serving in that capacity. I love this here. Jesus is saying, as if it wasn't enough that I'm going to die for you, I'm promising you blessing and happiness if you will, if you will follow my lead and love others as I have sacrificially loved you. I love that. You know, sometimes we may get weary and think, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this. 
I keep giving and giving and giving. Pastor Kempis, I hear you, what you're saying, and I see what Jesus is doing here, and I see the implications of it for my own life, but I keep giving and giving and giving, and there's nothing in return for this. These people that I'm serving take, 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 and they never give anything in return. There's no reciprocation taking place. In fact, they respond to my kindness with meanness and hatred. We all get it, don't we? But listen, brother, if you're sacrificially loving as unto the Lord for his glory, Jesus promises blessing here. There's blessing that comes from knowing that you've pleased your master. That drives me every day. Doesn't it, doesn't it drive you? Getting up every morning, what is going to keep me going today by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit of God? I want to be pleasing to my master. He is worthy of my service. He's worthy of my love for others. He is absolutely worthy no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what trials or difficulties I'm experiencing. He's absolutely worthy. I want to please him. What does Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 say? And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those of the household of the faith. Be doing good was what is intrinsically beneficial for all people, especially to those who are believers, to those who are Christians. Now, wrapping this up, in the midst of Jesus teaching them this lesson, he knows that not everyone present is a genuine follower, right? Look at verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you, not all of you will be recipients of this blessing is his point. I know whom I have chosen. I know, in other words, who my real followers are, but the scripture will be fulfilled. In other words, this is not a shock to me. It's foretold that this would happen concerning Judas Iscariot. And here's a quotation from none other than Psalm 41 and verse 9, right? He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Ultimately, this pointed to Judas, who would betray Jesus. And so it's not a shock to God. It's not a shock to Jesus and Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be taken off guard by surprise either. He doesn't want them to be shocked by this either. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now concerning he who, who has is going to betray me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am ego eimi. He has repeatedly referred to himself that way, right? It's a title of, of deity. Even now, brothers, Jesus is strengthening the faith of these disciples. He doesn't want them to reassess everything that they've come to believe in him. He is the great I am. Everything is going according to plan. Now notice further in verse 20 that even with the devastating news of a defected traitor, the mission is still intact, right? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Not only is this all expected regarding Judas, he's saying, but you are still to represent me on this earth. In other words, the mission is still in place. Jesus says, I send you. When they receive you, they receive me. And the person who receives me receives you. I love how faithful and good a shepherd Jesus is. Amen? Such a faithful shepherd. Even now, he's shepherding his disciples. That even though he's had some strong instructions by way of his example that they ought to love one another and told them about the traitor Judas Iscariot in fulfillment of Scripture, he reminds them in verse 20, the mission is still intact. You will represent me. Later on, this will be the great commission at the end of, of Matthew chapter 28. That's really what this is in verse 20, the great commission. You're going to fulfill this even despite everything that you're seeing here concerning Judas Iscariot, the great 
traitor. But now for us, in the midst of the news that Jesus sprinkles here concerning Judas Iscariot's defection, Jesus would ask each of us, brothers, are you following my example of loving self-sacrifice? Some of you are, surely are. You're an example to us. Maybe taking care of a sick or disabled loved one, family member or friend or other. And you are so faithful behind the scenes. Praise God for you. Maybe you're a, a single parent doing your best to parent your child and provide for them. Maybe you're a, a single college student or you're pursuing just being faithful at the job, in the job where you're at. Praise God for you. You're seeking to be a faithful servant of God in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're faithfully serving in the church, even behind the scenes in service opportunities and ministries that nobody notices, but you're very much part of the reason why this ship called Calvary, uh, Compass Bible Church of Aliso Viejo is continuing to move forward. You're part of that, behind the scenes, being faithful. But all of us need to be following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And so, brothers, whenever we find ourselves self-serving, selfishly driven, unwilling to love sacrificially, let us go to John chapter 13 and reflect upon Jesus' example. Amen? Let us behold the one who, although he had infinite privilege and position and glory and majesty, stooped down to do this, loved us so self-sacrificially that we would follow his example. Let's pray. Father God, oh Lord, we thank you for the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we need your grace and we need the power of your spirit to be men who are faithful, men who are serving with the heart of Christ in our homes, in our work environments, here at the church, Lord, in our neighborhoods. We want to be faithful men of God who are, Lord, chief servants. Thank you for the women of our church. Thank you for the faithful servants behind the scenes who are seeking to do things as unto you so that this church is a church full of highly committed participants and not passive spectators. Lord, help us to be a part of that as men. Help us as a men's ministry to lead the charge as far as being chief servants who follow the example of Jesus, we pray. Pray for tonight, even as we break into our small groups, that the time would be edifying, that we would build one another up, that we would be good listeners, and that what we contribute would be for the edification and the encouragement of our brothers in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.